Welcome to Exploring Creativity. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a community for creative people all over the world. On this podcast, we explore a variety of topics with a multifaceted group of creative people. We explore these topics in hopes of broadening your perspective and giving you the tools you need to do your very best work. Today I'm speaking with Spider. Spider is a music producer and creative director. Together we explored the art of surrendering, the importance of groups, trusting others, and so much more. It was a great conversation with a great friend, and I'm super excited for you to hear it. Hey, man. What's up, dude? Here we are. I shaved for you. You said I, I sound funnier when I, you, when I shave. You, you do. I like a little trim with a little <laughs> extra mustache. I like a little bit yeah, of yeah, wildness yeah. in the hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There we go. Um, well, thank you for joining. quite like. My pleasure, Dan. My pleasure. Here we go. Um, dude, I was going through topics to talk to you about, and I was like, I just kept writing different topics, and now I have 13. So you're, you've made a record for the most uh, topics I want to speak to anyone about so far. Uh, All right. And as always, uh, I leave it up to the, the interviewee the part- to, uh, <laughs> to participate. <laughs> to um, decide where they want to start, uh, what they want to riff on. And right. you know, you've seen some, we've talked about it, but it's really an open jam, basically. I'll throw right. out uh, a topic and you can riff on it as long as you want, as deep as you want. Um, yeah, so it's all you. I'm going to read off the topics to you and you let me know. Okay. All right. So we got them right here in my uh, my spreadsheet. Literally. Amazing. Some upcoming people. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the first one is language, hmm. uh, relationships, hierarchies, self-esteem, hmm. creative models, environments, process, play, intuition, history, organizing thoughts, uh, collaboration, and then a new topic I added, which is like falling in and out of love with the craft. Mm. Man, that that's uh, it reminds me of this Brian Eno um, lecture that I just watched, where the students of the art school all listed what they wanted him to talk about, and it was basically everything that's ever existed. Right, <laughs> like the topics just covered everything. It was, yeah, it was yeah. really really incredible, and that's how I feel about this. I mean, this is. I mean, look, we've been in a conversation about all these topics for a long time now, and they're all very interesting threads. I think one of the ones that jumped out to me was play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a few things I can say about that. Um, Stuart Brown is a research scientist who pioneered some very inter- interesting work on play. He has a, an iconic TED Talk. Um, Stuart Brown, I believe is the name, and play. We'll have to look up the name of the TED Talk. It'll probably come up pretty easily if we Google. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> he's sort of, in, in the TED Talk, he goes through a history of play uh, where, you know, he's talking about primates and the role of play uh, in mammals. And and he goes back and, and shows some artwork from like the 1500s, which is like a town center with all these adults engaged in various forms of play. 
physical mm. play, fantasy play, like all these different um, ways in which play can be expressed. And talks about how play is not a thing that is unique to children. Adults can play all throughout their lives. And he talks a lot about, in, and his research is centered around brain states and what play can unlock in terms of um, perspective, performance, learning, uh, connection, you know, like um, even the most basic stuff that happens between mothers and babies making faces at each other. Mm -hmm. um, the, and sort of using what I, what I got from it is at the time I was clinically depressed, anxious about my future, um, very unproductive and in treatment. And when I was first exposed to the video, I, I used this prior to actually receiving like real professional attention for what I was going through. And what I realized is that if I wanted to be, this is part of the, the problem with depression. One way to describe it is that you're stuck in a problem solving loop. You're trying to solve a problem and you don't, and then you lose motivation to solve the problem, even though you know you need to, mm. right? That's one of the, one of the frustrations of depression. Um, and what, what Stuart is talking about is the ways in which play facilitates problem solving. Um, and the way that because what I could do is I, I trained myself. If I found myself ruminating over an unsolved problem, I would immediately switch to a playful mindset mm. and switch like that burrowed in focused. I got to solve this thing, stress hormone driven focus, narrow focus, and try to open up to the field of opportunities, mm. right? Not to let that narrative be so the narrative be so narrow and focused by constant rumination, right? Without ex external inputs from other people, other perspectives, um, even other versions of myself from the past, like when I've been in a different frame of mind. Um, You're saying inputs uh, from yourself in the past? Well, the, in a way, like we're in a conversation with ourselves all the time. Right. Like the things that we've thought, the way we've seen things in the past, we sometimes draw on them to remind us of how to orient mm -hmm. in the future. Right. So, so even recalling your own advice or your own, <laughs> your own sort of past self. Um, yeah. Can, and stress sort of limits the inputs to just what's very immediate. Um, so when you're stressed out about a problem, you're really not in a mode to discover a way out. You might be in, in a mode to execute on a way out, but not really to, to discover mm. it. Mm. That's, that's just the natural impact of stress. It just brings acuity to the moment and narrows, necessarily narrows focus. So play in a way is the opposite of stress um, in, in terms of brain states and what the, um, and what it says about possibilities. And that's, that I said nothing about the social impact of play, right? This is just, right. this is just the individual point of view. So if you're, you know, being stuck in a problem and you find yourself thinking about it in a loop, you know, the, the trick for me is to engage it's a, a playful mindset 
to think yeah. about it and open up. Um, and it's funny, like I'm doing it now, like I'm starting to smile involuntarily. It's like that when you, when you practice this, you, you get the agility to switch on demand. Um, that's the kind of training and meditation or like this kind of mindfulness practice. It's like, you're mindful that you're ruminating, ruminating, just thinking about the same problem over and over again. It's circular. You catch 22 so you can get really trapped in that, right? That's a feature of depression. Um, and the playful mindset sort of takes the guardrails off of that rumination and gets you out of the loop. Um, you know how to describe that in maybe more convincing, substantiated terms, but I think it's worth looking at Stuart Brown's TED talk as a sort of place yeah. to start. And then, uh, then there's for the listener, it's called play is more than just fun is the name. Yeah. 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 Watch that. It's a classic. Um, mm. it's before HD, I think, <laughs> I don't even think it's 1080. That's like, um, uh, <laughs> wow. That's like, uh, you know, BC and AD. It's like before, <laughs> at, before HD, BHD, what is BHD made it way before 4k. So yes, it's play is more than fun. Um, he, uh, the, the other piece is maybe tied to the unique style of education, um, described by Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hine, mm -hmm. um, Love. what they describe as a culture of learning, um, it, it, unique because at the college where they taught um the way that the the way that the college work worked the semesters worked is that you had students in a kind of full-time way for a year mm. so you had the same small number of of young people in your class and you could really go deep and have a day in and day out life together okay. so they would have 16 hours together the students would have like a 40 hour work week, basically with the work that you give them. 16 of those 40 hours were together in class or lab settings. And then they would do field work, like go to Costa Rica where they're together like 24 seven biology, bi evolutionary, evolutionary biology stuff. And they talk about this culture of learning about not only like propagating or, or reinforcing the curiosity and the, and the mistake making that you need to do and the, the bad ideas you need to put on the table in front of everybody in order to get to really good ones, um, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but also the role of play, what a Frisbee can do for the class, you know, if you're outside, um, and at, every time that they mention this in their, in their live stream thing, they do every Saturday of the dark horse podcast, YouTube channel. They talk about it sometimes and they're asked about it by listeners sometimes. Every time they talk about it, I'm like, man, this is exactly the mindset of, you know, the, the time that I spent with Tony Maserati and the team, like working together day in and day out, time for play, you know, like we take a break from mixing. Um, the whole team would come into Tony's room, Tony pull out a book, you know, like we'd be talking about Winston, whose birthday is it today is Winston Churchill's birthday and 
Nat King Cole's birthday, like just trying to find, like trying to loosen up the mood and like, you know, when things get intense to sort of punctuate, um, moments of intense work with moments of free play and sort of that, just that non-judgmental, um, so like where you can sort of surrender to, uh, a group mood been really into this idea of control versus surrender in art and in social life. Um, how trust enables this surrender piece. And a lot of times I think play like when I'm playing with Rory's kids, I just sort of surrender to the things they enjoy and just go with the flow. Right. Um, um so you know, play sort of engenders this feeling of freedom. It allows things to bubble up easily. So if you're looking for lyrics in a songwriting session or you're, you know, like lyric writing to me was always felt like comedy writing. It was like, you throw out whatever weird thing or thing mm. that excites you. To me, it was often things I thought were funny. Mm. And then, you know, and maybe you get, um, you know, a play on words um, you know, maybe you get that feeling of spontaneity, that feeling of where, you know, this thing just pops out of nowhere. You know, you might make that new connection or find that new perspective on a thing that everyone knows about that universal thing. The way comedians are so good at finding a new angle on the most mundane thing. And all comes from play. It comes from just turning off propriety and judgment and surrendering to what feels fun, what feels good, um, and what might light other people up, you know, what might empower other people. And really intuition is, is unlocked at that point. You know, you're just operating on a much more intuitive level. Um, so I think, you know, the discipline of having your, in the studio, say it, it, if you have the discipline together and your technical game is tight, you've got a platform on which where play is possible and play, you know, you can have that sort of deeper levels of surrender and trust in the room. Um, and you're not being interrupted and you're not going to become again, that stress thing, that shoulder tensing focus, narrowing, um, thing until you need it until you need to deploy that thing where you procrastinate on purpose to get those stress chemicals up and it's time to execute and execute fast. And mm. um, I don't know, kind of on a tangent, um, but play I think is underrated. Mm. I think people look at play like, oh, that's childish. It's like, no, this is a device for unlocking the best in us collectively, individually, um, I play all the time with my dad. Most of what we do is play. Yeah. You know, we joke around about stuff or we fantasize about driving the, you know, Malibu Canyon and the vintage Porsche again, like we did 15 years ago. It, all these different forms of play. What's Sarah writing here? So good. I learned that play for me also allows me to be more intimate with myself since I'm more vulnerable to explore. That's it. It's just, you, you're just in a, a play is, a, is occurs in a, in an environment of acceptance. Mm -hmm. 
And that's like synonymous with love, right? It's like the complete, like love is just complete acceptance, radical acceptance. And that's what you need for play. Uh, good faith play. Yeah. <laughs> See, we could say like, I always feel like we have to hedge and like put like psychopathy and sociopathy like off to one side mm-hmm. because not everyone is going to play in good faith. True. Maybe one, one out of a hundred people are going to be angling for advantage mm-hmm. um, and, and get off on their version of play is in controlling other people. There's a lot of people are wired in, in ways that, yeah. So it's not, it, you need to be discerning about who you engage with at deep yeah. levels of trust, obviously. Right. Yeah. Um, and maybe at a certain point we won't have to preface so much of this, but, yeah. um, it's just the, the normative state for human beings is, is not psychopathy. Right. You know? That's a fringe state. Um, but it's like the uh, state most people fear when like thinking about why not to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean we, a lot of us have horror stories of you know, opening right. the door to people who, you know, you were close, uh, ill-advised in doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there's, there's a lot here and it seems like people on the chat are really getting a lot of value out of this. We've spoken about play, I think on briefly for one other episode, but um, I like how deep we're going here. Um, you mentioned Stuart Brown's TED talk about play, about how this is not a only reserved for children, but it's also reserved. It's, it, it's a device for everyone. Um, and that what the device, uh, the device's function, the form being play, the function being um, creating openness uh, uh, across individuals. Um, and the other functions that serve sort of second tier functions are like reducing depression, um, getting people to generate better ideas or new ideas, um, reducing stress. Uh, I think those are all pretty, pretty solid ones. Pretty good ones. Yeah. Generative, 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 communal generativeness. I don't know how to word it. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is, this is, so the, uh, I've been digging into architecture, um, lately to see how it informs, um, community coherence mm-hmm. since architects are always talking about and about their work, the fundamentals of architecture have to do with people, right? You know, there are works of architecture that speak, but like architecture I don't know. I don't, I don't know what statement to make about architecture, but I think like the the way that architecture schools are set up in the United States is a thing they call the studio system, which is where you get these hives of people. Like here, I, I you know, I live and you used to live next to SIAR, which is um, mm-hmm. Southern California Institute of Architecture, right? It's right here, like out my window, and they. Um, they have a YouTube channel, um, SciArc channel, and and they have some documentaries and things describing this. But the the studio system is a place where for five years, architecture students 
work together in close quarters, day in and day out, um, in, with a tradition of critique, presentation and critique. Um, and, you know, it, it being a creative studio, you know, sometimes these young people work strange hours and sort of go to extreme lengths for their creativity and to, to um, put themselves in generative states or, you know, right. look for that inspiration or whatever. Um, and the, the, the small communities, these small hives, these communities that are built, you know, there's this element of play there too, mm-hmm. where, you know, there are intense deadlines and finals are coming and final presentations or like whatever is happening, you know, in the calendar year, you've got, um, this natural predilection that people have for play when they're together. So, yes, what I'm doing. So if you're, if you're, and this is one of the things that like, we talk about high resolution context to relationships and, and what it means for the depth and meaning of community. This is one of my concerns about your trip and how long it is. And this sort of thing is that the high resolution context of living in a neighborhood with someone, you know, like the, let's say like we have, um, we have meetings set up throughout the week, say we're like developing a workshop here. We have the conversation staying to do the conversation. And we look at those blocks of time. It's like, well, there's an agenda for these blocks of time. And it's like not a lot of room for play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but when you're with somebody and you're like, oh, let's go get coffee. That whole walk to the coffee can be like just outrageously funny and playful. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's just a kind of thing that people do when they're together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like these without play, without like turning off the judgment piece, the kind of creative output you get is very contrived. You know, it's, it's predetermined. Um, it doesn't sort of just arrive and surprise the person thinking the idea or the people in the room or whatever. You don't get those kind of pleasant surprises. You get, you get, you can get effective design. Um, uh, I have so many thoughts, but I've been watching these Brian Eno lectures and I don't know how I haven't done this before in my life, but when people say that I remind them of Brian Eno, like now I totally get it. Like the way he's thinking about art and design, the way he addresses that art design debate that we had last year and like so many things, like I want to get on a page with you guys about, um, we'll probably talk about it tonight on the podcast a little bit. Cool. Um, play and generative states and practice and all the things. Um, I just, I, I, I just have, I can't imagine create effective creativity without play. Mm. Like even at like the NASA level, like JPL, like one of the things Stuart Brown talks about is that they're like research and development at, at, at jet propulsion labs at, um, in there in Pasadena, 
they stopped hiring people to do research and development that didn't have a history of working with their hands. People mm. who didn't have, oh shit, just spilled water. People who um, had a history of like um, woodworking shop in high school or like mechanic, like worked on like, worked on cars or like did things where they made that hand brain connection. Mm -hmm. um, that hand brain connection, the like fine motor movements in the hand early in life, what that does for brain development. Uh, the ability to conceptualize manipulating things in real space, um, which, you know, m many of us have seen NASA solve problems up on a space station or a space shuttle from the ground, where they sort of have to right. model things that, you know, the ability to model and imagine, Jesus, I really spilled a whole glass of water everywhere. It's pretty awesome. Um, this is our first spill on the live. Let's acknowledge that. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you want to dry it off, you could take the phone with you. And it's just water. I mean, it, it's just a walk. It's out. It's good. It's refreshing. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm out on the limb a little bit with this because I, I don't actually have very clear points, but um, yeah, I think, I think play is underestimated in its practicality, mm. especially yeah. among adults. Right. There's a sort of, I, I've been, I've been told that I don't see my age. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I credit that to never using an alarm clock. Like after mm -hmm. the time I was like 17, mm -hmm. um, uh, not being rudely awakened by a horrible sound every morning. Right. Uh, and, and to like uh, an engagement and, and a, and a value of play. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, it's a kind of way of, again, like play has this sort of inclusive quality, you know, like kids can be engaged in it. Grandparents can be engaged in it. You know, do you think there's a reason why play kind of, uh, goes away at some point? Yeah, I, I think, I think, uh, I think it has to do with professionalism and pressure mm. stress in general i think stress automatically has the impact so chronic stress stress hormones are inhibiting play mm -hmm. and with stressors being professionalism or like yeah building your profession or, or job related which should or be things, or things people don't think about like mm leaving your family and friends to go away to college and go live in some new city. True. Like, I don't ever hear people talking about that, the cost mm. doing things like that. Uh, mm. You know, I think, I think kind of like our financial independence leads to, you know, the kind of depression, anxiety and stress that comes from not having deep community ties mm -hmm. like working at a company in a new city. Like if I moved to Seattle and got a job at a company, lived in some apartment or managed to buy a house, mm -hmm. like not in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not like, uh, but like, I, I think we underestimate like what this kind of mobility 
what the downside of the the kind of mobility yeah. and financial independence we have, like the consequences, like I, I always go back to this thing about camping, like you tell an eight-year-old kid, nine-year-old kid to do something, like they might have a certain attitude about doing it. If they don't do it and nobody eats dinner, like their mother doesn't eat dinner that night because they didn't collect firewood. Mm-hmm. Like the consequences are much different. Right. And those consequences about like our survival, when survival is threatened, it like brings out this calm and it brings out this connection thing in us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like only when you see that, like when, when you see a flood in Houston where teenagers form these navies with bass boats to go rescue people, rescue animals, farm animals and things like it's this situation is bringing out the best in them. This group adversity response is so automatic and hard to contrive. Um, sports sort of help to do this different sort of high intensity, high consequence activities that can sort of trigger this thing. But um, most of us live without those kinds of consequences, you know, so we don't have that, the, the, the sort of primitive environmental social environment that kept us sort of buoyant that kept us from ruminating, that kept us from getting in these loops that keep our thinking from becoming too circular and insular. Um, I, I, and, and I think there's like a, for, for a lot of young creative people who are independent and trying to go, trying to, you know, sort of become everything they can be. This is the conundrum we're in. It's like, well, community ties are really important, but what if the community being a participant is limiting of your, what you're capable of and a source of frustration, mm-hmm. which was the case in my, in my life. It was like, I don't belong here. This is, could you, could you zoom like in? I do and I don't, but no. Could you expand on that? Sure. I mean, I, I grew up in a, a religious community in the sense-making that was taking place in this community um, was discordant with logic in my mind. Like I could, I couldn't buy in. And so the core doctrine of this community that I was born into was not something I, I could, I could find a way to participate in as I got older. Um, and Wait. Rory has joined every time. Put up, Rory. The Trinity is here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there were there were some um, psychologically and relationally um, um, uh, how do I put it, like. I just couldn't see my future there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as a teenager, I withdrew from this religious community. I withdrew from school. Um, you know, and so that meant withdrawing from family, essentially 
in its entirety, withdrawing from school. It, you know, I was dyslexic. I didn't perform well once, once I got into high school. I had very high SAT scores, very, you know, high testing scores, very low performance in school. Um, just with, there was, there was not a way to deal with dyslexic people in the school who had a lot to offer, but could, didn't fit the main track. Right. It was very similar to the church thing. It was like, there's a very narrow track here. It's very, um, legalistic and sort of authoritarian in the way children are treated. And I did, I took it, I didn't take it well. I didn't like really handle that well. What I did do is just withdraw. And it was sort of out of necessity. It didn't seem healthy to participate. Um, and the, the mission became to find an alternative game and music became that. Music became a thing I could put energy into and feel a sense of mastery and get better where schoolwork and that sort of thing didn't, didn't offer that. Um, uh, I could practice guitar every time I picked it up, felt better or start writing and things would get better. I could play with other people. We could build a band, start building a reputation, you know, start doing artwork and start branding. And, you know, it was a thing that. I put energy into and it, and it, I got more out of it than I put in. Right. Right. Um, so I forget, I forget sort of where we're headed with this, Michael. Um, well, the, yeah, to, to kind of summarize where we've taken it, we were talking about the function of play, um, mm. as a means of opening up as a means of uh, second order or function being like getting out of depression by breaking this loop. Um, then we started talking about uh, surrendering and how like, mm-hmm. um, well, we talked about surrendering and kind of how to get to the state of play. And then I asked what prevents play uh, mm-hmm. being, you know, the stress that comes from. And then stress and then ambient stress. And then yeah, what are we all, because we're so mobile and can leave our families and we have mm-hmm. these options because we have the option to leave do we maybe on uh, statistically speaking, right? Like just in the, in the broadest cultural sense, do some of us leave too easily? Do we not understand the downside of striking out on one's own? And are we really measuring the, the downside with the upside? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, I'm, I'm guessing that there's some price to pay in terms of chronic stress as an adult having decoupled from the place where you come from and the people you come from, you know, even given your background of like being in a community where you felt you didn't feel in, uh, in the right. Yeah. Yeah. And very much a fish out of water. Um, yeah. Even there you're saying you still feel the same way about that. Uh, yeah, I, I feel I'm more concerned about the downside now that I've ever been, mm-hmm. you know, sort of looking back, um, I had, you know, many unmet needs looking back. Mm-hmm. And I think if I were more aware and, and, and if we had a, a better collective understanding of how 
people, people, you know, I get a little concerned when people frame it in terms of consumerism. Um, mm-hmm. It starts to get like a political anti-establishment bent that I think is missing the mm-hmm. point. You know, I think if you look at it more from an anthropological or evolutionary point of view, what you see is just people decoupling from their support networks and forming new networks that don't have the depth. Mm-hmm. You know, like that family thing. When I think about my cousins, they're like people in my life forever. Like it's not mm-hmm. conditional in the same way as other relationships are. And I think people underestimate the value of family in a kind of, um, like what it means for that, the general well-being. What was that? You hear that low end coming through? No. Dang. Rattled the house. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, but I, I would, I would suspect that, that, you know, in the same way that like, just the fact that parents divorce at a certain time in a young child's life mm-hmm. predicts sort of adult outcomes. Mm-hmm. That same kind of breakdown in the mm-hmm. in the sort of local network. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think that that it's reasonable to think that the kind of way that we live our lives in such separate ways has an impact on general anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I want to, I want to pause here. Uh, we've yeah. been going on this track for a little bit. Um, yep. just to kind of re-summarize, contextualize where we're at. Like, I think the point of why don't we play seems to be a pretty broad one in that mm. it's not just a decision. It's definitely not a decision. Like I don't want to play. Uh, it might be, um, part of it is could be stress related. Uh, another part of it could be trying to appear a certain way, like per- feeling professional means I don't play or around these people, I don't play. And then you took it to another place, which I think is very interesting, which is, are we even in environments where we can play? And like, if we're not, how did we get there? So like, if we got to a play an environment where we can play, like why on average are people not playing? And on average, they happen to be in environments that they um that are weaker have weaker bonds so like these two things Mm. i mean correlation isn't causation but it's possible that these things are related so like yeah yeah. the complexity of that relationship is i don't think it's possible for humans to to model it um yeah yeah if if you look at a pendulum this isn't a thing that brian eno an example brian eno makes um, an illustration or a demonstration of complexity. So if you have a pendulum, it swings back and forth. It's sort of a predictable thing that you can model. Um, we think about it's sort of politics. We sort of, the pendulum swings left yeah. to right, you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a simple model, but if you add a hinge and a second pendulum, mm. right? So if you have a, a pendulum, a, a, a primary oh, pendulum, and then a small pendulum attached to it with a hinge. The behavior of this thing is so chaotic and unpredictable. You could never model the pattern in your mind. And that's just one, that's just a, like a, a, a factor of one mm. in terms of complexity. You add multiple hinges on a pet and you just get endless right. on what appears random. It's just impossible to predict what's going to happen. 
and then you have a and DNA that, sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that and that's 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 where our intuitions break down. So yeah, I mean, I don't. We can we can try to find a connection, and, and I think mm-hmm. we probably will find out more about play. But yeah, valuing play, I think, is part of the problem. We don't value it. Mm-hmm. And two, we don't trust the people around us enough to do it, to, to surrender to the group mood or whatever. Um, there isn't a culture of it maybe in the workplace. Like maybe your job, like, like one of the things that I was so impressed with when we um, did the PMC rebranding work together in the art direction was making time for divergence. I mean, this is... Mm-hmm. You don't have that in a lot of professions where the role is so narrowly defined. It's just doesn't, you're part of a machine where play isn't required. Um, uh, and you know, how much of the day, week, month, year are people who have these sorts of jobs where there isn't room for it? How much time are they actually spending? spending suspending the urge to play mm. they're and practicing they don't realize training they're do, like down regulating or training down the intuition mm. to play yes um uh, yeah i mean i think young people are punished for playing um again it's like the if parents don't value play value play in terms of its value in, uh, you know, in terms of brain development and maturation and, and, um, the systems of regulation that accrue over time as kids play things out. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, if we don't value it, then we won't protect it. The pressures against it. So you've got the stress and the pressures against it, the cultural pressures, and then You've got a lack of value, mm-hmm. which means we don't preserve, we don't preserve play. Yeah. You know, and I don't know what the balance is for people. You know, I don't, I don't have a prescription for like, well, you should have this much time, play time in your calendar as a grown right. man or a woman or whatever, um, or as yeah. a family or, you know, but I, it's, you know, we know that it has value, that, that it brings people together. It lightens the load, you know, you know all kinds of reasons mm-hmm. why. We yeah, play more. You know. mm. What do you say we switch to another topic? That was great. I filled up uh, four pages of notes. So <laughs> usually <laughs> I fill up four pages for the whole thing. So we got cool. we got <laughs> we got some information out of you. We've done uh, this before. Do you want me to? Yeah, right. Do, uh, do you want me to read the topics again, or was there anything that sure. still? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So language relationships hierarchy self-esteem, creative models, environment, process, play, intuition, history, organizing thoughts, falling out of love with the profession and collaboration. Oh my God. What was the create creative something? Models. Creative yeah. Models. What is the, what is, what is that? Well, think- I was thinking specifically, I added this one for you because of the divergence convergence conversation we started months ago and sort of how modeling led to uh improvements in communication and improvements synchronizing us and yeah relation all of that Hmm. 
what other models would there be? Um, I think, you know, even when we were just talking about like uh, this pendulum, I, I've been posting a lot on this status page, the um, different spectrums, right? These are all models of different attributes, uh, mm. ways of navigating uh, creative problems. There's obviously divergence and convergence, but there's models like mind mapping and there's, mm. um, you know, spectrums and there's uh, finding causal relationships. I don't know. There's, mm. you know, yeah, architecture, like, actual I, modeling is a thing. Yeah. Actual modeling, small scale models of large buildings is a way to sort of represent ideas to builders and get at conceptual. Yeah. Even solving engineering problems. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, Maybe not the topic. I just added that. I don't know. Modeling, modeling is fascinating and I always yeah. feel empowered by it. I just haven't thought much about it. History, you know, I, I'll jump on history a little bit because I think so much of what's exciting and frustrating to me at the same time, I have this bittersweet relationship with finding the work of people maybe who are even not even alive anymore who say things that I'm trying to say so much better. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I'm grinding away on an idea over here only because I had not accessed the previous work. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and the value, you know, the value of understanding where, where I come from, where things come from, where ideas come from sort of looking back and looking at these developments or trend lines or um, anything that we can measure, that measurement has a history, like human beings are taller now than they used to be. Um, we're more intelligent now than we used to be that, you know, IQ 100 keeps going up in terms of its capacity. It's 100 is always the, the center of the bell curve. Right. But the actual intellectual capacity keeps going on. I forget the effect that they said that's called the Floyd effect or something. Um, but that measurement has a history and it, we can predict where it's going based on that, right? So if you don't know history, you have a hard time making predictions, right? If you don't have experience with a certain activity, it'll be hard to predict the outcome. Um, this is what science gives us. It gives us the methodology for arriving at better predictions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, history is another thing we seem to be sacrificing as a society. We seem to have a shallow view of history, um, of the human condition. Um, we think of classic things coming from the mid-century, you know, when there's thousands and thousands of years. Um, another thing that's startling, you know, an, an example of understanding history and why it matters is like, if you look at, for instance, sperm count is decreasing. And if you follow that number, that decrease, eventually it hits zero. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. If you're not following that, if you don't know the history of sperm count, you can't 
you can't be motivated. Like you can't see that we're heading, you know, it, it, some scientists are saying uh, 2000 in, in, in 2045, sperm count hits zero. Hmm. That's like 24 years from now. Right? Maybe, maybe that's alarmist and maybe there's a curve. Maybe that line is going to level out. Who knows mm. what's going to happen? But if we follow the history of sperm count, that's where it's going. It's going to zero. Now, what if we just say, hey, look at what we see today and try to predict what's coming, we are handicapped. So mm. um, knowing the history of music, where music comes from, not not just like the history of what happened, but the history of our relationship to music. The way we've engaged with music, what has worked, what hasn't, what fell off, what stayed. Um, you know, if you're trying to make improvements in the world, you need a way of modeling. You know, if if you want literacy rates to go up, you need to know the history of liter literacy rates. Mm. Yeah. You need a trend line. You need to evaluate the methods against what was done before to make iterations and improvements on. You know, otherwise you're just starting from scratch every time when so much good work has already been done, foundational work. Um, so that's that's sort of how you know, I feel about the way that I think about history is like, this is an essential aspect of us, of making improvements of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, is that you sort of, you need to see, you need a symmetrical view in order to look forward. You have to, you have to see the trajectory from the past. And the yeah. direction things are moving, you know. I really like that. And and someone said in the chat, um, I want to give credit where credit is due. Hmm. Um, where is it? Uh, Keegan said, how can you know a thing without knowing its history? And it's true. If you're studying something up until now, it had a history. So everything has a history. To really know that, um, it's sort of, you, you don't know it if you don't know the history. At the end of yeah. The yeah. Um, yeah. Our, our art history is, is a specific, like, um, a kind of striking example because like art, art has, a, <laughs> when you start thinking about intrinsic value, if I look at a painting and I'm like, wow, that's beautiful. Right. That would be a kind of intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. But if, if you really drill down on what that means, like art that really um, reaches across all cultures and means something similar to people, it's what's there is really kind of low resolution. Like, for instance, like in speech, if I increase the volume of me talking, Pretty much everywhere in the world, that raises stress hormones. Like that, that is a form that's tension, right? There isn't a, there isn't a place in the world where you can get louder and louder with your voice, and people get 
you know, calm. more state, yeah, calm and sleepy and mm-hmm. right. So there are these intrinsic pattern-based biological realities mm-hmm. um, that are interact with, but art is a conversation with the the thing that that came before it. So when a painting is released, quote unquote, it is in relation to all the other paintings that I've seen in the past, right? And the way that, that the, you know, art world functions is like, oh, this is a conversation. It's this painting is relative to that one. And it's relative to the expectations and people's relationship to art. And it it's, it's without seeing the through line of different art forms, you're not engaged with this deeper level of meaning and the cultural context and, and the, and really like the learnings that are possible. You're just sort of looking at the, the candy shell and saying, I like it, don't like it. And maybe there are sophisticated ways to do that. Um, without the history and the context and a high resolution context, it's a kind of shallow thing. Um, and then, which is why I think like these documentaries around the way records, certain records were made or, you know, about historical things or why like Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast is considered the best thing, best podcast ever made. It's like, mm. it's the, the, the feeling that we get this is another aspect of history is like, if you had no memory, how calm would you feel? <laughs> you know, if I'd you have, I might be better off. Maybe <laughs> if, but being from nowhere from no, and attached to no people, right? I mean, it's solitary confinement is cruel and unusual for a reason. I mean, it's deleterious to the human state. Mm. Um, so yeah, like personal histories matter. I mean, I don't know. History is such a broad concept that there's so many avenues we could go down. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to, to zoom in on that for an example, um, in your creative process, when creating anything really, how are you using history? Um, what function does it serve for you? I think it fills in like the, like a steady diet of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates more nodes on the network, right? So when you're in a creative state, a playful state, it's a lot of like dot connecting and like a metaphor is like, oh, this represents that. This is parallel to that. Um, it's sort of new connections. And, and so history creates a context for those connections to be made and is an aspect of their resonance or their rightness or their, I'm going to fight for this thing. I'm going to go for that because it's rooted in something. Or it just becomes part of the, in, the intuition in the moment. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like a one-to-one, like, oh, I learned this historical fact and now right. 
I'm inspired to do such, such. I mean, that'll happen. That'll happen. You know, like, uh, anything can inspire a, a, con a new connection, but yeah, to me, it's about the palette and the, the landscape of creativity, how rich it is and how grounded it is to human experience. Um, how much empathy, what is the depth and power of the empathy one can feel at the arrival of a new lyric or a new artistic idea or whatever it is, or a brush stroke? How does it resonate? Yeah. I think it's part of that reson reson resonation, uh, reson resonance, yeah. resonance mechanism. Right. You know? Okay. So, uh, kind of recapping where we've gone here. So we, we dove into history. What's up, Rob? Rob helped me out a lot last, uh, this week. So I want to give him props and tell him I love you publicly. Nice. <laughs> um, uh, so we're talking about history and how history is a way of leading to predictions <laughs> or better predictions. Rather, we could predict whatever we want without knowing anything, but it does show trend lines, context, characters involved, how all these things are kind of flowing into what is today or this moment uh, that's yeah. ever changing. Uh, most importantly, we talked about the fact that sperm counts is decreasing. People went off in the thread about that. Um, I actually wrote that I think the title of this chapter should be the history of sperm count. Um, but that's an aside. That's me playing. Um, yeah. the, um, we talked about, you know, the function of history um, that it serves in the creative process, giving you this three line, giving you data, um, it being an essential aspect of making improvements as the creative process is. Mm. Uh, building blocks uh, is coming to me, like the concept of building mm. blocks, mm. having more building. Oh, that's funny. The Broad Museum is going live right now too. Uh, the, 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 yeah, like the historical ideas or historical facts or historical perspective are like, it's like having a diversity of building blocks to play with in creativity. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm seeing the model. Yeah. So it's, it becomes another tool in, in what you call the palette and landscape of creativity. So like mm -hmm. it is an attribute, not the attribute, um, mm -hmm. but it's definitely an attribute to create it. Uh, I saw mm -hmm. this, for example, when we were working on PMC's uh, visual identity early on and referencing history of uh, of punk and grunge posters and design and culture and then like 90s pop music and everything that metal and everything that was happening and what was leaving and what was coming in and why certain symbolism was there. Uh, and it's even down to something as common now as the checkerboard pattern, which I saw your ring. That's incredible. I didn't uh, want to show that off. Yeah. So, I mean, what that actually represents and what that means, uh, and now using that with more, uh, respect, uh, when I mm. create designs, like even yesterday I was riffing off this idea of generating a new version of a checkerboard. What could that look like playing with squares and overlapping and whatever, <laughs> regardless, I was going into it informed with what the symbolism actually meant, uh, which then allows them to either add to that narrative or subtract from that narrative or do whatever you want. So and I the checkerboard has a rich history of meaning. Right. You know, I mean, when you see Victorian manor mm -hmm. homes and castles and whatever with that, that checkerboard floor, 
you know, it had a certain meaning then. And then when it was used by the specials and the two-tone label, it had a somewhat of a different meaning then, although those meanings are related. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, the Masons, you know, have a version of what it means for them that's more similar to, you know, the Victorian meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a yin-yang concept or, I mean, it's just different. It's, it's, it's also used by emergency services. Yep. You know, so like you can, like, uh, uh, like the Louis Vuitton uh, current obsession with the checkerboard has an in- internal meaning because it's a form that Louis Vuitton right. has used in different ways. Yeah. Um, not just the strict sort of square checkerboard, but the sort of negative pattern, patterned negative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a whole conversation going on there about meaning, mm. you know, um, the, the, it's a very striking and powerful graphic device. It's immediately eye-catching and really dominates any place it appears. So like to wield it as a designer must be, must be incredibly careful, I would think, about the proportion of it and the, how much it dominates when you're trying to get a message across. Um, and, you know, it means something else associated with vans and, mm-hmm. and a sort of California lifestyle and, uh, you know, Venice Beach and sort of youth, you know, like the youth culture part of it. Um, right. It's, it's, and so even with, with the symbol that we, you know, it sort of is a part of all of our lives. I mean, it's the checkered flag when the, if you're a NASCAR fan or if you're a cycling fan, it's like the checkered flag. It's like, it represents achievement and uh, it's just so rich with the meaning. If you don't know, if you don't know the history of it, it's just like squares on a page. Like it's just right. so shallow, you know, mm-hmm. or oh, that Which like it's ska. It's like, okay, great. Right. Right. You know? And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really. It, this idea I wrote, it allows for the conversation with the path, like uh, acknowledging history as a uh, sort of a palette and also part of the creative palette uh, allows for you to tap into that and understand what came before, how symbolism evolved, how terms evolved, how the discipline has evolved and where it's going, or it allows you to make predictions, unique predictions of your own of where it's going and then allows you to either decide to carry things forward or, or leave things or urge things for the future. Uh, yeah. But without, without a sense of history, how do you evaluate the thing? Like, how do you evaluate things mm, mm. to decide if you should, and then leave them behind or carry them forward or, or right. protect them against, right. um, against extinction or whatever. I don't know the right term. Um, It reminds me of the scene in Tenet when um, protagonist meets the um, the Indian arms dealer's wife. Yeah, and he's like, he can he can uh, what does he say? He's like he can communicate with the future. And she's like, yeah, we all do credit card statements. Da 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 yeah. da da da. 
It was like, oh yeah, we all do communicate with the future. Mm -hmm. It's if I leave myself a note, I'm communicating with the future. If I wake up in the morning and see it on the table or remind me, it's like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we're all doing that. We're all leaving a record. Right. Um, <laughs> and I feel like we're communicating with the future more than we're communicating with the past. Like sending a text message, communicating with the future until someone sees it. But to this point, like the history angle, we're not as often communicating with the past um, and seeing what came before. Yeah, we're not, often the re we're not as, as often the recipients. Mm. We're the senders and not the recipients. Mm. Yeah. If we're, yeah. if we're not studying history, then we're just sending into the future without the wisdom of the historical viewpoint. Right. I don't know. I'm really on the, on this tip right now about, you know, the term conservatism has so much baggage in culture now, but if, if one can divorce that word from Fox news or cable news or the current political discourse and understand conservatism as an impulse to protect the things you love, mm. you know, like. The way Chris Tabron is a steward of audio engineering knowledge and studio culture in New York City, he's like, a, mm. to me, he is like the, the leading voice in New York for audio conservatism. Shout out there. There's things, there are things that Chris loves okay. that he wants to, to bring forward, right? He wants these things to survive under pressure um, of extinction. And I think that we should all value that impulse. Not everything should be changed and not everything should be changed at a rate. I, I'm so interested in radical solutions for, for problems in the world. Um, but I, I also value the people who were like, well, hold on a minute. How much is this going to cost? What are the mm -hmm. likely, what are the unknown unknowns about the effect of this change? You know, like mm -hmm. people who are temperamentally wired to hesitate. We need them as much as we need people who are emotionally driven and motivated to bring about change and help people and you need a gas pedal, but you also need a break to yeah. navigate. Like you need that a push and pull in that pendulum swing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think history, the appreciation of history coincides with the appreciation of conservatism as a disposition, mm. you know, maybe not as a collection of political ideas that are narrowly defined by the media. Right. Um, and, and the people who've been captured by that framing, that narrow framing. Right. Um, but as a natural human impulse that, that has been an aspect of human life and village life ever since there's been such a thing, you know, there's been more cautious people and less cautious people. And together we have a, a diversity of perspective of how to I like the. I like the Oxford Dictionary's definition of 
the wish to resist great or sudden change. Um, being one of the, there's obviously political connotations. They place that definition first, as opposed to other dictionaries, which place the political definition first. Mm -hmm. um, you know, know your dictionaries, know how they uh, organize definitions, guys. That's important. Yeah, yeah. They're not all yeah. the same. Yeah, no, I, I always feel obliged to remind people that dictionaries are a study of the way people speak and, and yeah. common usage. It's not an authoritative document right. that tells Definitely. you how it should be done. That's not, that's not what it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and if people, people are using the term to mean political stuff, then it should be the first definition from a lexicographic right. point of view. Right. Well, I mean, I think yeah. depending on the dictionary, we can, I, I, language is actually a topic, so it might be a cool transition mm -hmm. for that, mm -hmm. is that each dictionary is going to handle that, their responsibility differently. So if they're saying like, if we're using entomology to derive definitions of the words, we should put the most, um, or it's our responsibility to put the most uh, unencoded uh, meaning first, you know what I mean? Where there's not all this, uh, politicized nuance to it or like, re you know what I mean? Like, where did it start? And then where, did it whereas you could argue the other way, it's like, no, where is it? And then where did it come from? Um, so it's sort of like a, a decision I, uh, ultimately of, of where to put that and, or do you even put where it is right now? Do you just put where it came from is another decision. So kind of interesting. Yeah, language is really fascinating. I, you know, a lot of my friends know that I many years ago started this project called Downton Dictionary, which is like an encyclopedia of Downton Abbey, um, you know, etymologies of words, idioms, phrases, all this colorful language in Downton Abbey, historical reference, even personal references, certain characters or properties are named after friends of his, friends of the, the creator, Julia Fellows. And in, in starting the research for that project, etymologyonline.org or whatever the etymology, that big etymology website is, it will blow your mind yeah. if you're interested in that sort of thing. Like looking up these words and where they come from and some French, some German, some Scandinavian, you know, um, some Arabic, uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting to see like the evolution of words again the history of words i think there's a lot of emphasis that i that i see um in my experience lately about specificity of words and certain words being off limits and sort of legalism and some of that same stuff from my religious background that was so sort of stifling and stunting this sort of legalism around words and this sort of authoritarian impulse to control other people's words. Mm. Um, and, and I always come back to John McWhorter, who's always been, he's a linguist at uh, Columbia and a social commentator and author. He's written 20 something best-selling books. He's just prolific and a real genius. Um, uh, and a great asset for making sense of, of, of the world and, and the stuff we see in the news and stuff. It's a very interesting guy. Yeah. He, he is a constant reminder to me to listen for people's meaning as opposed to the words. 
Mm. It's like very easy to have an unproductive conversation by nitpicking the words um, when when the meaning is is clear. Um, and it's helped me a lot to be more charitable in conversations mm. and to and to be more productive and in whatever that that framework is, um, even in the friendship, um, is to lean in for what people mean mm. with what they say and and not really be so literal mm. in in judgment of, of what they're saying in the literal sense, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's sort of, that's intersecting with this idea of listening, skills that come with listening because you're listening to words. Those words have meaning to the speaker and different meaning to the receiver and kind of, um, what you were saying here is how do you resolve that dissonance? One is listening for meaning if you can find it. And the other is if you can't, uh, which you didn't mention, but I wanted to add, which is if you can find the meaning, that's where the opportunity is in dialogue to uh, understand the meaning. And then yeah, to un uncover more common ground. Yeah, yeah, it's unclear to bring clarity. I mean, yeah. that's that's. That's also a really interesting thing. And in one of my early conversations with Eduardo, one of the things he appreciated was our orientation in our language toward clarity. Um, and it's, it's something that you can, you can actually tune into and learn to spot when people are speaking and the general disposition or the general orientation is not toward clarity. Mm. Right. If it's if it's sort of creating smoke screams or confusion or yeah, this is a, a general state. It's not like if if we say let's explore an idea and one of us on the podcast goes out on a limb, it's mm -hmm. it's in a very experimental frame of mind and we create a big mess intellectually. Oh. That's not what I mean. I just I mean like the overall purpose of, of, you know, engaging in a conversation or a presentation or a piece of work. Um, there's a lot of language that you hear being used that reliably is, has a divisive effect or, um, creates confusion to the advantage of the speaker. Right. You know, but um, it's if I can interrupt for a second, I think there's two, there's a lot of means of communication. So there's more manipulative means in which the words that are being said are intentionally encoded with more than the receiver could ever know. And then there's words that are encoded with meaning that the receiver doesn't understand, doesn't realize. And then it's up for the receiver and communicator to resolve that. It's always up to them to resolve it. What you're talking about is there's sometimes ways of, of encoding things into language that the receiver can't comprehend. And it's intentional that they can as a chess playing maneuver. Um, but I think that's sort of like the psychopathy, like it's a subset of mm. Uh, well, that's interesting. Think, yeah, it's it's a subset, but it's also like read any description of a supplement that mm. 
a sure. marketer wrote and you'll see sure. like there. or the concept of techno battle mm-hmm. right so you go to a speaker company website and start reading the copy yeah you know that's what i mean like that it's interesting that we frame it as psychopathy well, sorry, socio- sociopathic, no. because it, it does, in a way, it's to refine what I was saying, I meant it'd be like, like from human to human, not from business entity to human. That you could almost guarantee is more the uh, former of encoding a lot of ideas into these really small, catchy lines that yeah. just. And sm- again, that's a smoke screen making up for the yeah. fact that the substance isn't there. Mm-hmm. Like yes. the true and honest message, there's yes. nothing, there's nothing there. So yeah, I, it's language, language is fascinating. Um, there are times where language needs to be very specific when you're coming up with a mission statement for your project, your nonprofit group or your business or whatever. Um, refining language and, and, and fussing over wording and all this sort of thing is really important. Um, it, 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 it meaning if you have a very clear and fundamental way of framing your purpose of clear vision, that could be of great value over time, compounding value over time. Yes. There's a reason why businesses spend so much money doing it. Um, um, uh, orienting your work and testing your decisions against a clear mission, being on a mission. Again, I mean, organizing human beings, one of the prerequisite of a healthy organization is shared beliefs. Mm-hmm. And um, without codified beliefs and clear language, like how does everyone get on the same page? Like, how do you cohere? You know, language can be very important. And I think it's, it's a kind of wisdom to know, like when to turn on that, that fine criticism Mm. and when to, when to turn that off and lean in for meaning when dealing with people, you know, Mm. there's a time and place to be the, you know, the, the most intensely critical editor and then there's a time to sort of allow people to speak and and to engage them in a way that doesn't put up their defenses, you know, where you don't need to correct them about that term, but in your next sentence, you can bring the clarity that they seem to be looking for anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been, obviously, I've been reading a lot about this. And, and one point that I like is that the methods of bringing clarity or what's interesting. I think oftentimes the default mode is that the receiver brings the clarity, but really the goal is that the speaker should recognize the lack of clarity through the receiver's questioning. Um, and then they develop a shared language instead of, it's like, if you, you know, teach a man to fish first, give a man a fish. It's like, if you tell them the meaning, then they have nothing to work with other than in this moment it worked. So it's like, um, the response to someone who, uh, has said something that, uh, isn't understood. The best response there is to state what you think that meant 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. with advertising and yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's an important. It's sort of a. Um, it feels uh, counterintuitive, but it's extremely intuitive over time because that's actually how you can develop the shared language over time. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, when you say this, you actually mean these things. Next time you say that, I know what it means. Or you might even change what you say because now you realize uh, there's more to it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a zoomed out. It's a zoomed out view of the development of ideas. Mm. You know, so like, yeah, two of, like yeah. the two of us, I had no idea what I was going to say coming into this, right? I'm just thinking out loud with you, right? You and I are using each other to think. It's a collective thinking. Um, and the, I don't know what I'm going to say next, right? I don't know the next word that's going to come out of my mouth. I'm kind of watching it happen the same way you are. Yeah. Um, none of this is prepared. And the, I will integrate the things you say, you're integrating the things I'm saying, and we're sort of, we're building like a, a kind of collective summary of what was produced here, right? And every time we talk, we're, we're sort of doing this. This is a more deliberate version. You know, we do it when we, we discuss a thing we saw in the news today or whatever. You know, we sort of create a, a collective understanding, a model. We help refine, we help each other refine. Um, and, and yeah, and if you're, if you're too zoomed in, again, stress, if you're narrow in your focus on the immediate, you'll be like, Ooh, there's a wrong word. Oh, right. there's a grammatical error. Oh, that right. he misspoke there and flipped the words around. You know, this kind of stuff is like, mm-hmm. If you get called out on all of that in a conversation, you're going to like be more hesitant. Again, you're not going to surrender to the collective agenda, right? You're going to be less trusting. It's, it's language, you know, sensitivity around language and how it may affect people. Um, it's definitely a thing. Um, you know, I will use different words and different settings for efficiency's sake, you know, mm-hmm. to be more certain that the message gets through, um, right? To build a bond, to 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 demonstrate common ground with people, um, to engender trust. Like if I go to the bank and talk to some, I won't go to the bank. Uh, who goes to the bank anymore? But keep this metaphor going, though. I like just no, it's like you go to the bank talk to the banker it's like different than you're going to talk to like an intern at a studio there's different opportunities there and the different purposes and you you may use different words a bit of code switching Mm -hmm. um i like sensitive i'm just sorry but the the sensitivity to words and how they can affect people can definitely go too far Mm. to the point where you're you the impulse to protect other people from bad feelings and mm. stuff can override <laughs> yeah. better, better. I mean, this, and, this book of listening has really, uh, altered my perspective of what dialogue is doing. Um, and I mentioned so on the podcast, the yeah. bridge to other selves mm-hmm. and what that actually like words being the bridge to other selves. Um, Keegan wrote 
And thank you for participating. Uh, they've written a lot of different comments. So yeah, far. sorry I haven't kept up with everybody at all. That's um, so but, interesting. Um, they said it's translation, right? Building a common language. And it just had me thinking that oftentimes, because like, let's say, you know, you're in a room with people, they all speak English, uh, American or United States version of English. And they all even, let's say they came from New York, all of them. So they have the same tone and cadence and accent are very similar, let's say. I think what happens is that still there's going to be translation issues and the translation, I see that visually as the bridge. And so like they're throwing things over to the next person to catch it. Um, but if they're throwing a baseball, sorry, if they're throwing a football and you have a baseball mitt receiving it, it's just a weird mix. So I think it's like always being aware that it's not just when you're speaking to another language, like someone that speaks Spanish, let's say, you're actually translating. You're always translating. Yeah. Like there's never a time that you're not translating. Yeah, it's and always a process. to be like, okay, like, you know, when I went to Spain, I had to think of the word coffee. But when it's you and I in dialogue, it's so easy to not think when you said this word, what that actually translates to. You know, you're not as conscious, but um, most of the time, because we've developed the shorthand, you never know when that word isn't representing the thing. So it's like, if you're always in this state of continual translation, knowing that tomorrow I have a different meaning of something because of experience and so do you, like if you're always translating, that's the only way to really stay updated uh, to where people are at. And so, you know, it, it, if you look at a dictionary, it's three to five definitions of a word. How do you even know which definition I'm saying? You know, it's just like, it's really impossible to know. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's very interesting. Like if you're always in a translator mindset, it actually opens you up more. It gives you more empathy. You need to zoom in like, okay, they're saying this, but they might mean anything. Let me, let me figure it out. Let me translate it. Yeah, so. uh, di dialing back the certainty injecting a little humility into our own assessments of the world. That's why, that's why I think things like, um, art and nature are so important to human beings. Like the feeling you get around a fire at night outside under a, a canopy of stars is a humbling experience. And to, and to like, I experienced that, what, last time I experienced that was three years ago, right? Um, whereas I I believe it's probably healthier to experience that more frequently. Mm. Um, that sense of awe and wonder. Like the fact that we have language at all is totally insane. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and again, yeah. if you don't look at history, if you don't have an understanding of, or even the animal kingdom and look at what the world looks like without it, um, how brutal and, and uncaring it is, um, without our ability to model other minds, like I have a model of my own mind at my head, and then I can model your mind modeling Dennis Koziak's mind. Right. Like I can imagine what you're thinking about what Dennis might be thinking about John's new mix. 
Like that's a totally right. nested theory of mind kind of Russian doll. Yeah. Right. It's like three layers removed. Yeah. But that seems to be the difference between humans and, you know, our brains and other kinds of brains. Mm. Um, and language, the role of language, like there are languages amongst, you know, other mammals and stuff. Um, but they don't seem to accompany this ability. Um, and, and, uh, I don't, I don't know what that means for language, but I think it, it's a fascinating, again, wonder, like inspiring wonder, like what great buildings do or, um, great streets, um, mm. street meaning like a, a public room, right? Not a road. Yeah, with with scattered buildings like a street, like there are some streets that are just awe-inspiring, just lovely. Yeah. Um, again, the stars, fire, the o looking out at the ocean, at the horizon, you know, the bending horizon, like the silence that's produced by this sort of awe and wonder. Um, all kinds of beauty can produce this. Um, that to me is an essential aspect of like dialing back the certainty and that sort of curmudgeonly or that mm. nitpicking, that sort of nitpicky, like that frustration we feel about other humans not getting it, quote unquote, or why don't they, why don't people see it this way or like whatever, like, um, you know, it's sort of the... There's this fact about people as they age, get happier. Mm. And I think if I, if I understand it correctly, it has to do with this fact of a sort of letting go of like the sort of, um, tight control around the way people should be. There's more of an acceptance thing that seems to occur over time. It's like, oh, I've seen this happen enough times. I'm not going to get all worked up about it should be different, you know? Right. Um, and I think uh, to expand on that, I mean, and to relate it to language is, is this idea of like, you realize when you listen and understand the other person that there is no other way they could be. Uh, given, even just if you're only zooming into the language and the meaning they have encoded in every word in their head, which you'll never be able to do, but let's say you could. Trauma aside, history aside, just that. There's, they're only operating with, let's say they only know five words and those words have like a one word definition. <laughs> they know 10 words in total. Um, like they're only operating with that. And so the world is formed by the words that we know and the understanding. So to think that someone should do anything would require them to even have a different definition of the things they know, an expanded definition or a more deep definition. So the only way to even potentially have some effect on that would be, which is why community is so important, to have the discussions, to allow the expansion of ideas by being heard and responding to what's actually heard so that you have the model to then help them expand and help you expand your understanding of them so that it's nearly impossible to judge because they're only seeing it 
from their wet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. and you you really only can see it from your wet at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And you can simulate someone else's right? Yeah, model yeah. simulated it a great. Yeah, yeah, but you're like seeing it your way through their way. <laughs> um. So yeah. yeah, I think that's where like the words and collaboration intersect. Is like, how well do you know your collaborators? How really the question is how well have you listened to them? collectively for the length of the collaboration to know them in the way that they want to be known or not want to be like faking it, but, but have uh, that, uh, how close to their core do you know them through listening and through dialogue? That's uh, the only way to really know and be able to communicate back to them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suspect that the, the words and the dialogue are a small aspect of how we know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, body language too. Yeah, body language, but also repetition. And this is the high resolution context piece for relationships. It's like, mm-hmm. what are the stakes? Right? What are the stakes? How is somebody likely to respond in crisis? Mm. Um, how did they handle this difficult thing that popped up randomly because we happen to live, because we live close to each other? Like, what are those local events? Um, um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about what, like, why do couples, why is long distance relationships like a hard thing for people to do? Right. right. There's certain expectations around a romantic relationship. Um, certain things that keep it going. Um, certain rate of development that keeps people interested. Um, rate of development is a, in a general, in a very general sense, like trying to understand the acts, aspects of context in relationships. And if, if the words we choose and how we deliver them is a small piece, then what's everything else? It's not just like, what is my shoulder doing and my eye and all the sophisticated stuff that's happening with my body and what it's, what it's communicating. It's how do I move through the world in a way that indicates to other people what I'm likely to do in, in the future? And but that, what kind of trust does that engender? Uh, it's that, more narrative. I want to dig in on because I think well, I don't think language is a small piece. I think behaviors are a response. The response is also, there is la- there's internal dialogue, right? So that's language too. Mm. Um, let's say something happened, a challenge happened, someone responded a certain way. You don't really know why until you can, and that's uh, assuming both parties are in full openness, full listening state, let's say. You wouldn't know why that response happened unless you listened fully, you know? Well, you wouldn't, uh, can't know, can't know why really anyway. Right, right, right. But you'd have, oh, sorry, you'd have higher yeah. fidelity of the response through listening. Yeah. And then you'd be able to almost make potentially better predictions, but even still it's unknown, you know, because like you said, people are changing and updating all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love this conversation, by the way. It's so fucking nuanced. Um, mm. And it requires a lot of the things we're talking about. Collaboration, 
language, internal, yes. external dialogue, listening, these things are like, yeah, and it's all about relationships ultimately, because that's where the, yeah. again, the, the, this thinking out loud thing between two people, Louis Kahn, the architect, um, mm. architect I'm very interested in, I found, um, Cyarch has a, um, an archive channel and I found a talk footage, like really, I mean, you gotta be stoned to watch this. It's mm-hmm. cut together, like video footage from 1972. Oh, wow. Like a really raw, fucked up audio, like, but it's kind of mm-hmm. amazing. They're like snips of this talk all stitched together. And he's talking about rooms and like, we get two people together in, in a, in a, in a, reasonably sized room they have this sort of thing we're doing like we're we're, mm. we're in that sort of intimate space it's like as soon as you have a third person it becomes chaotic and and you start to see perf- people performing and then if you have a large room he's like i'm talking to you here he's like i've said all this before i'm not coming up with new shit this room is right. too big there are too many right. people here you know it's like it was a framework you know i, I could argue it you know, I could argue aspects of it, but I think he was talking in terms of human nature and how we tend to default, statistically speaking, not in every case, you know, right. not trying to make an absolute statement. It's a tendency he's referring to, I think. Mm. Um, uh, but it, it, what it does is it takes thinking and makes it a group activity. Yes. You know, and I love this. I love this sort of relational thinking. Um, I have a, an urgent requirement for a nature break. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mind if I pop out and pop back in? Do you want to chat for a second? Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll be like just a minute. All right. Yeah, cool. sure. All right. I'll be right back. In the meantime, if anyone wants to join briefly, feel free. Um, or I will just pass some time. Maybe I'll show you guys some things I was working on. Yesterday, this is uh, something I created. It is a riff on the checkerboard pattern. Um, it actually started with uh, these shapes. I forget which one I chose of these. There's three, six, nine, uh, 14 of them. Um, but each one I wanted to turn into a pattern, duplicate and then distort. And so um, I chose one of those and then duplicated it endlessly. And then took that and actually like created more three-dimensional circles throughout. And so that's kind of what your eyes seeing. Like it's cool because it's actually two-dimensional, but you're seeing three dimensions through the curvature brains, assuming depth. Um, but that's what I did last night and for absolutely no purpose other than, uh, to play and explore. Another variation of that was how can I take that same surface, but, uh, indent it and actually, um, manipulate the curvature or actually, uh, insert curvature into the pattern. So, uh, dragging and shaping the pattern into, uh, a completely different form. And then, um, let's see here. The third one took that manipulation even further. So 
I was actually following axes of the pattern. So the original pattern has very uh, straight line or diagonal line. So I was taking those diagonals and 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 um, smudging, you could say, uh, down the diagonal. So they're actually still going in the shape of the pattern, but it's smudging all of the things in a direction. So directionally, there's movements, and there already was movement given the pattern. All just different riffs on like. Um, similar concepts. How do you manipulate a pattern was kind of the core thesis. And then we just look at like one of the original patterns, like you have something like that, or um, uh, that was like an original pattern, another original pattern. Uh, they are, they're, they're cool, right? But they weren't enough for me. It was just like, they're not alive. And so I wanted to activate them in a way. So, um, spider is back. So let me, uh, let me get him in again. Thank you, Zen Master Rob. I don't know if you follow me, but you should. There we go. Just explain some design work in the meantime. Cool. Yeah. I love I that stuff. Thought, looking good. I would love to take a nature break myself, but I don't think I can because if I close it, I end the chat. Thanks, so. I'm in it to the end of the line here. Right, right. Um, well. I mean, we covered a lot. I think um, this idea of, you said, thinking out loud and two people um, or making thinking a group activity. And I think <laughs> when we think about language and we discuss language, it's like the activity, if you imagine a game, there's four players, there's some rules to the game and ways of uh, winning that game. To me, winning the game is like, listening at 100% fidelity, which is very hard to do because we insert our bias, which stops, it closes, it narrows the bandwidth. We um, assume what someone might say next. Uh, we take their words exactly to mean what they do. Um, you know, all these like kind of narrowing of the signal that is the word. Um, and we don't even know we're doing it. It happens so rapidly. That like when you're, you get the signal in that, and that's just a one-to-one -one thing. Now, like you're saying one to two people creates chaos. It's like, of course it does, because now there's conversation going in every direction with that same narrowing, maybe some open or whatever, right? It's just words are flowing and, and bouncing on the floor, um, at an incredibly fast rate. So it's, uh, in a way, the conditioning of a conversational team is the practice of listening and the practice of summarization and the practice of the elimination of biases and like all these things um to get to an optimal point of like fully uh listening where you could repeat back the entire thing almost uh or at least the summation of what the thing was it's very hard to do i've been trying to practice it on these lives but summarizing the points that were made so yeah. I'm going to try it again. Nice. Um, the, so what we were talking about here, we, we got into language. We started with the history of that um, and entomology. And so the connection between language and history, what does this mean? Where does it come from? Uh, how words can be off limits and how words can be used as a means of, there's sort of like a, a grenade that you're loading in the meaning and a ton of other stuff around it and then just throwing it out. So kind of using it in more manipulative ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
this idea of listening to meaning over listening to words, um, how uh, listening comes into that and uncovering meaning, which is really listening to meaning over words. Um, the deception of marketing, for sure. Uh, how having a clear narrative with words that are very intentional and developed and chosen and shaped and mean something, at least to the group that it needs to mean something to, uh, can be a very powerful mechanism of growth and of progress. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, this idea of, uh, modes to switch between when to critically edit versus when to allow free form play, you could say of, of words. Um, then you said this phrase, a zoomed out view of the development of ideas. And then I started model drawing a model of like, what does it mean? What's a zoomed out view of the development of ideas? Um, and so I modeled it here, let's see, but an idea has words that describe that idea. There's execution for that idea. There's transmission of that idea. And then the reception of that transmission of the idea. And so like, there's all these chains in which it can break. Every arrow is a ground, a point of failure for an idea to exist in the world. Um, so I'm zooming into language and words, but really there's more than that. You know, execution could fail, transmission or reception, like all these things could fail. Um, yeah, and philosophers are quick to point out that like the arrival of an idea is usually not correct. Mm. And it takes version after version, iteration, conversation after conversation. So that pattern that you're, that sequence you're seeing is repeated over and over and over again in a kind of sculpture project or mm. an excavation project to actually see to, to bring again, to bring clarity. Um, the ideas are refined word. I edited it. It's, it's a loop. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a loop. And and it's also a back and forth, you know, uh, right. between two people, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we could do, we could talk about the development of ideas for a long time before we come up with a truism or anything that resembles prescriptive advice right. about it. You know, like yeah. we may have ideas and they're sort of poor, poorly formulated, but through this back and forth, you know, we can get, we can whittle it down, whittle it down, incorporate new thing, yeah. perspective. And then now we have something useful, you know, mm -hmm. that we want to carry forward. That and they can Eduardo's, Eduardo's of the, you know, the young people can now have this bit of technology or, you know, mm. have this building block to, mm. to incorporate and, and to build off of, you know, again, they don't have to start from scratch on it. It's right. kind of like the Gary Casper of, you know, the 11 year old kid reading Gary, Ka uh, 11 year old chess player who read Gary Casper chess champions book. Right. And like, after like a day with the book could beat him. Right. You know, it's, it's taking past work and building on it. Yeah. Which is a traditional, that's a traditional art form mode of being. It's taking previous work and iterating and innovating on it in subtle ways, keeping mm. what's good and improving on it 
bringing that that art form that worked in the past into a modern context um, mm. where it addresses modern concerns, um, but without starting from scratch every time, you know, right. in a kind of modernist, egocentric way. Mm. Yeah. Well, what do you say? Want to go another topic? Do you want I mean, to you know, there's 10 more minutes in the hour. We're coming up on two hours here, so. Oh, wow. That happened. If you want to uh, finish it out, I'm done. You know, the average of your bladder would stand. You know, I'm practicing strengthening the bladder. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So let's run down some um, uh, language. Did so relationships, hierarchies, self esteem, creative models, environment, process, intuition, hmm. organizing thoughts, falling out of love, collaboration. Hmm. The falling out of love thing, I think, is fascinating. But um, what was it? What was some of the first couple? There was one that um, relationships, hierarchy, self-esteem, self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. This is this is maybe an interesting one to close on. Cool. Um, self-esteem is a funny concept, um, mm-hmm. and I think there's not a lot of clarity around it in mm-hmm. normal usage. Um, I think self-esteem is not generated by the self. Mm-hmm. I think that's a collective, it's the result of collective activity and, um, has to do with hierarchies. So the serotonin exists in our bodies as it is the mechanism by which we perceive ourselves to exist within hierarchies. That's what serotonin is for. Um, This is true throughout the animal kingdom. Um, Serotonin system has to do with relationships and hierarchies and where one fits in. In human beings, we all exist in multiple hierarchies all the time. Like even between Michael and I, there's a hierarchy in humor uh, at any given moment, one of us might be funnier than the other one. So, um, in, uh, you know, like a, a different abilities that we have professionally, uh, so like, we're, like, a small, we're a small hierarchy, hierarchy you, too, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. When it comes to cycling knowledge, you know, I'm mm-hmm. in a different position yeah. on the overall hierarchy of cycling mm-hmm. knowledge. I mean, and we're involved in like a human being is an, along many axes and many hierarchies simultaneously through time in an ever evolving. And again, the level of complexity is just too much for us to, yeah. to, to bear. Um, but that's what serotonin is for. And there's a kind of like general, there's a, like a general overall kind of hierarchy. Um, and maybe how one finds perceives themselves to exist on the master hierarchy mm. would be what we could call self-esteem. Mm. Do you generally think of yourself as a good person and valuable? Um, ha- trying to train yourself to have different thoughts about that, I think is a fool's errand. Mm. I don't think that faking it until you make it with positivity has panned out. Yeah. 
I don't think that that's how it works. Um, I think that doing things that you're proud of, that going to bed at night thinking, I did well today. I didn't succeed at the thing I set out to do, but I did my best. Mm. And tomorrow I'll get up and do that again. Mm -hmm. um, it also has to do with the feedback you get from other people. <laughs> um, which is why being around people who are wired to manipulate you and wired to derive pleasure from your pain mm -hmm. can be so detrimental to self-image and self-esteem, if you want to call it that. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I think like concepts of hierarchies are useful. Self-esteem is a kind of is downstream from many other things. Like mm. looking at how one thinks about oneself is a reflection point. It's not an intervention point. Mm. A way to intervene is to like, oh, let me get control of my calendar and be more intentional with how I spend time. Who am I spending time with? Is this, am I positioned in my job socially in a way that suits me? Or am I, do I feel constantly misunderstood just because I'm poorly positioned mm. um, in a social context? Um, looking for those upstream points of intervention that will produce better self-esteem. Right. I don't think like, I don't, I don't not really into this idea that like self-esteem is a thing you just do. Yeah. And that's how you orient the rest of your life like that will it's not the fix it's the outcome you know it's right. sort of looking at a bank account and being like just make the numbers higher right. like well, what do you mean there's yeah i don't have a job <laughs> it's like we'll start there they have cybersecurity experts preventing that like i you know mm. it's it's just like a it, the feasibility like i don't see a mechanism i just don't see a mechanism in training one's self-esteem now yes. cognitive behavioral therapy i may be contradicting what i believe because cognitive behavioral therapy is around reframing points of cognitive distortion but even that cognitive distortion is upstream from a bad self-esteem right. yeah right. I mean, it's and yeah, that's that's reframing internal dialogue more than it is like if you reframe that internal dialogue to be like, I'm rich, but you're not like we're wealthy, but you're not like, that's just, you know, that's a fool's errand. But yeah. if you're like the world, like my whole life is terrible, but it's not. And you, it's just a matter of reframing that's, then it's useful. So I, I get what you're saying there, but a good yeah. distinction. Yeah. Positive. I don't know if it's positive psychology or just this sort of like repeat your positive affirmations. Mm -hmm. Like this whole, this whole new age sort of way of approaching well-being has mm -hmm. been deleterious to well-being. Yes. Um, you really should be getting in the driver's seat in life. If, if, if self-esteem, if the negative self-talk is intrusive in your daily life, there are structural things to deal with. Right. The people you're spending time with the place you are, what it is you're doing, 
and how you're thinking about it. All of those things can be upgraded. Um, demanding positive self-image of oneself. <clears throat> it just sounds kind of stupid. <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong, man. It's just, I've been through so many stages of of trying different interventions yeah. to deal with this core depression thing I've had since I was a kid. I'm right there with you. And I feel like the people that write the books on positive psychology more than likely have those three things in place. Like the people, place, practice is already in place. Like they might be living in a great environment with great people doing that. They're writing books or whatever, right? That are saying this stuff. They might be in the place where, and keeping that in motion where it's like, oh yeah, of course, like, just think positive. It's like, well, it's easy to think positive when all those three things exist, you know, like, because you're doing exactly yeah. in the place that is producing positive effect. Yeah. I think the downside of the positive, of promoting positive thinking is not every situation is positive. hundred uh, percent. And so you're going to avoid, if you're, if you're, if positivity is your standard, Mm. Then how do you address problems? How do you face right. the truth? You know, how do you face difficult things? Um, difficulty is not poison. Mm -hmm. Like negative emotions are not mm -hmm. poison. They're a guide. Um, emotions are essential in a rational approach to living. And acceptance of those emotions is self-love, right? Mm -hmm. That radical acceptance. My body is responding this way. I wish I wasn't frightened by this situation. However, I am, yeah. you know, I wish this didn't make me feel a tinge of jealousy, but it does, right? So lying to oneself seems to be more damaging than facing mm -hmm. negative thoughts or, mm -hmm. or ha having negative thoughts, the quote unquote negative thoughts. I mean, it, a negative thought, I mean, this job sucks, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what do you do with that? Do you wake up every day for 10 years and say that <laughs> to yourself? Or do you take yeah. that? Do you pretend? Do you have the thought and say, oh, stop I love my thoughts, thoughts and love stay them. in the job for 10 years? Yeah. Or do you, or do you engage with the discomfort and, mm -hmm. and strategize and ink and integrate the truth of what you're feeling? Mm. To me, this is a, this is the self-love. Like this is acceptance yep. of what is accepting the tendency toward this addictive behavior or whatever, like accepting it. Um, and I think the, the, and I, I, again, I hope positive psychology is the correct terminology for what we're talking about. This, this positivity and affirmation and look at yourself in the mirror and say, you're a great person and all mm -hmm. stuff like lying to oneself is a kind of trauma yes it it because a part of you knows that you're lying yeah i am happy right now it's like no i'm not right uh, i was doing a meditation this morning 
And it was like from YouTube, I found this great like morning meditation in bed, which is like, I'm the worst at getting out of bed. So this is great. But one point he's like, the weather or it's so beautiful outside. And the other day it wasn't. And I'm like, nah, bro, it's not. And I felt better than being like, it's beautiful outside and seeing all fog and it's fucking cold. I'm like, it's not. It's just That's not saying there is a utility at looking for silver linings in bad sure. situations. This is a different dimension. Yes, for sure. Um, uh, you definitely want to frame things in the way that's most advantageous without lying to oneself. It can be yeah. true that the situation sucks, but there is like, for sure. really sucks is really horrible, horrifying. Mm. But to lean in for that, that sure. way out that makes sense. That's wow. Like that situation for the last bunch of years sucked, but look at what I've learned. Look at how I've grown. Like right. that sort of post-traumatic growth. That, mm -hmm. that psychologists refer to. It's like, we don't wish the trauma on anyone, but to resolve it takes so much that you can end up, um, you can end up, um, you can end up better than you were before. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think part of this, yeah, gray drizzly fog can be beautiful. It's so true. Like leading it in beauty is different than, Telling yourself lies. Yes. You right. seeing and beauty in the smallest detail, like in the most mundane things, like this is a beautiful way to live. Um, mm -hmm. It can be debilitating if you're not positioned for that to be your thing to spend time on. But, um, right. uh, but I really, I would love to actually have more clarity around this, like, Silver lining versus lying to oneself. Mm. Um, and what that means in terms of like, I always, I thought of it as like mental hygiene. It's like, do you sort of indulge, you know, the kind of rumination and self-talk or are you sort of aware of it and like getting out of the, the loops and the circular mm. logic and the, um, what's the difference between that? version of mental hygiene and like a positive psychology, mm. you know, like the, how do you deal with the, with the reality of your emotions and also, um, expect the best, be optimistic, mm. Mm. you know, I don't know. I think that there's a distinctions to be made there. Definitely. The silver lining versus lying. That sounds a great podcast episode title. Silver lying. <laughs> Yeah, silver lining versus silver lying. That's good. Well, yeah, two hours, man. Two hours. I expect nothing less with thirteen topics, and we only covered like three of them. <laughs> but six hours, we do it again. Yeah, I know. So, um, I think this is a good place to break. I have a lot of notes to recap. Literally, the most I have thus far. Um, just to to demonstrate where we're at here. Oh, you gotta watch this Brian Eno clip. I'm gonna send the group because his Pete breaks out his notes for the talk he's giving on, and I was like, "Oh, that's pure Michael." Gonna love uh, that shit. Um, I got a new notebook, by the way, because uh, these talks have have run that notebook dry, and it's very cool. Um, I went to Staples; it was the only place I knew there would be a notebook, and inside of it, they have this like kind of their white label brand, I guess, called True Red. 
It's like, you know, rats, like it's actually staples. Um, and inside of this, they have this little pocket and inside that pocket is this sort of, um, they call it expert formats, but just ways of idea generation. And one of them is mind mapping. Yeah. Uh, and then there's you got your graphs, storyboards. Uh, this is just an outline and mind map and block thinking. So like, think a little bit about this here and there. Um, I just want to share this with people because I'm a big nerd with like outlining in my notes, but also like diagramming and mind mapping. And I feel like, uh, a lot of people I've heard don't really use a notebook or anything, or don't really know. I, I would assume the use of, of the, the lack of use of it is maybe, yeah, it is you yeah. <laughs> might be, um, related to the methods and knowing what methods to use and how and when, mm -hmm. um, and you know, we're used to typing on a computer, so we just type on a computer, but there's a utility to these rapid notes and being able to put something to the top right corner of a word and drawing a line and circling it that you just can't do uh, without a lot of work uh, on the computer. And, um, you know, I just wanted to show these because these are all different methods of using a notebook. Um, I thought it was cool. So they is that determined by relationship between the things like mind map is good for showing complex relationships? Yeah. Or so they say uh, block thing might be for something else. Yeah, so they give little sentences. I need to learn and retain, which is block thinking, outline. Hmm. I'm a structured thinker and need orderly review. Mind map, I need to explore and build on my thoughts. Um, hmm. Chart, I need to plan or compare. Storyboard, I need barriers to organize. Clock, hmm. I need to set a routine. So like, yeah, different methods for different functions or different forms for different functions, basically. Hmm. Um, but I wanted to share that because I'm a total geek with this notebook. I prefer one with uh, the dot grid. Yeah. So I don't even follow any sort of lines, but there's some nice Japanese dot grid notebooks. Oh yeah, Akito. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah look at those. Probably have nice. Good, good Liver has a really cool like um, monastery style daily digest journal mm. thing planner thing. It's pretty, looks pretty nice. As a little bit of a spoiler, I am considering one of the forms. Uh, I always like to update people on the book uh, at the end of this progress. So um, I have a mind map of different forms the book could take after it's written. Uh, one of those being like videos and YouTube and stuff, but another one being um, a journal planner organizer type thing that sort of has these topics encoded in it, some sort of workbook slash journal thing. I, I don't have the full concept yet, but sort of mm -hmm. leaning towards what could a, a actionable book look like uh, for individuals. Because mm -hmm. cool. I've gotten a good response to these the photos of the notebook that I didn't think people even gave a shit about, but it's like, wow, there's a, there's a gap here. So yeah, that's sort of where I'm at. But um, before we conclude, thank you for giving me two more hours of your time in on a Wednesday. Um, I had no expectations going into it and it lived up to that and beyond. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's always fun talking with you, dude. My pleasure. Same. I always learn a lot. Yeah, man. And, uh, thanks for everyone that joined or stayed on the entire time. Um, really appreciate all of you. So uh, have a great afternoon. Peace, dude.